Hello and welcome back to the Tez News Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Morris. A little bit later in the episode, I'm going to be joined by Senior Editor Dan Worth as we cover a whole host of unmissable stories from the world of education this week. But first, I'm joined by reporter John Roberts as we discuss the latest ministerial team at the DfE. John, welcome back. Hi there. So uh, I guess let's go through the big names. First, we've got former skills minister Gillian Keegan, of course, taking over from Kit Malthouse as the education secretary. And returning to a ministerial post is Nick Gibb, who between 2014 and 2021 was some form of schools minister. And he's joined by Commons Education Select Committee Chair Robert Halfen. These, I guess, are all names that many in education will be very familiar with. So they do bring with them something I guess we haven't seen as much in the DfE recently, which is a wealth of relevant experience, I guess, as the role of education secretary in the last four months has been passed on a bit like a baton in a relay race. Yes, absolutely. Um, as you say, like the, the, the last four months has seen really, a, a, I think, an unprecedented turnover at the department where we've had five education secretaries in four months, six in 13, and and kind of ministerial reshuffles that came along with that. And as you say, sometimes it's been a question, I think, for the sector of getting to know who the new people are, what they say, what, what they what they care about, you know, what their background is in education, that sort of thing. It's a little bit different this time. Yeah. So let's start with Gillian Keegan. What can we expect from her? And what does her appointment say about the government's possible focus when it comes to education? So Gillian Keegan is the new education secretary. I'd say that wasn't a name that I saw being touted around prior to the appointment, but she does have a relevant background. And as you say, she was the skills minister um, and an ally of, of Rishi Sunak, the new prime minister. Um, it's really difficult to know exactly where the government stands on education or has stood for the past couple of months. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what, what the policy focus is. Um, there's, there's two things I think that are really kind of relevant to mention here. The schools bill, which is kind of a, a live thing and yet already feels historic, was was kind of set in train in March by Nadim Zahawi, or something like four or five education secretaries ago. The, and then it there's a schools white paper and then a schools bill followed that then got into difficulty in the in the House of Lords. There was some suggestion under the last administration, under Liz Truss's government, that they were about to drop that bill. Um and I would expect that will probably still be the case, but it's it kind of this just speaks to the kind of hiatus, if you like, that we've faced, whereby you've got a policy thing that's in the pipeline, but because of the various different kind of political chopping and changing we've seen in government, it's been very difficult to kind of ascertain what the government's priority is. Um, her background, as I say, is skills, and I think the second thing to mention is that it was reported today um, in the Times that Rishi Sunak has a kind of an education reform agenda. And this piece refers to something called the British Baccalaureate, which he mentioned when he was um, running unsuccessfully to be prime minister, only to be to be appointed a, a month later. But this talked about creating a, a way of ensuring that all pupils did English and maths to 18 and having a baccalaureate, a, a kind of a broad kind of um, tranche of subjects rather than students been expected to specialise in particular subjects at A-level. Um, there's also in this piece a suggestion of a kind of a, a prioritising of vocational education, uh, which then brings us on to, to the two ministerial appointments that, you, that you've talked about. So Nick Gibb and Robert Halfen, I think, are really well-established names 
to people in the school sector in, in education policy, you'd struggle really, apart from perhaps Michael Gove and a couple of others, to think of a more high-profile pairing. Um, Nigib has been on and off the schools minister or school standards minister since 2010. Um, he was reshuffled out in 2012, back again in 2014, and then was in post, as you say, to 2021. I think we even have talked in the past a bit about how Nick Gibb, even when he's not been there, has kind of been haunting the halls of the DfE a bit. I guess it seems he's risen from the grave now, he's back. So what can we expect from him? Absolutely. I mean, I, I obviously we kind of focused on education, but I can't think of another politician who's not the education secretary, you know, he's not the secretary of state level person, he's, he's the is a minister of state, but nevertheless the more junior position, who has shaped policy as much in the last decade. And I guess part of that is um, um, because Michael Goh was a big reforming education secretary and Nick, Nick came in alongside him. But also I think it's just because of his longevity in the post and because it is definitely, you know, he's a very divisive figure in that if you look on education Twitter um, yesterday, it's, it's quite striking that people were either celebrating or, or, or commiserating you know, pe- people have a really strong view about whether whether or not he's right. But he, he's someone who definitely deeply cares about education, has got a really, really um, firm view about how, how and what schools should teach. Um, and so it's really interesting that he's been brought back. But it's particularly interesting because we now have this kind of contrast. Yes, of course, because Robert Halfen, who we know he writes for Tez fairly often, he's got a very different set of ideas about education, doesn't he? So, I mean, these are kind of like, little snapshots, I guess. But with Nick Gibb, the, he, he has been the kind of the man who's associated with um, traditional exam reforms and also with the emphasis of traditional academic subject teaching. So he's been involved in the creation of and a proponent for the EBAC, the English Baccalaureate, which is a qualification measure rather than a qualification. And it basically is a way of judging schools, assessing schools' performance based on how many of their pupils do a certain... Um, sort of set of GCSE subjects that basically comprise two sciences, English, maths, a humanity, and uh, a modern language. Um, now, by creating this performance measure, the government's setting a signal to schools that this is what we care about, this is important. And it has seen in most areas a kind of a move towards those subjects, foreign language being the kind of stumbling block. But nevertheless, that's that's what you think of when you think of Nick Gibb. Robert Halfen, although obviously they're not going to be sharing the same job, it's very likely that Nick Gibb's going to be schools and Robert Halfen's going to be skills. But nevertheless, Robert Halfen has spoken out about the EBAC. He, a couple of years ago, suggested that GCSEs and A-level should be replaced by a baccalaureate system. Um, so it's really interesting and a little unknown at this stage as to how the kind of um, the balance of those two agendas will, uh, will what, what kind of policy platform that will, that will result in. Um, but it's also interesting, you know, how much of what, what they've inherited will they continue? So Nick Gibb has been... Um, has been at the DfE over the over the past decade, most of the past decade. Um, but the Academy's agenda and the MAT agenda isn't necessarily his. Um, so it will be interesting to see whether there's any watering down of the government's targets on moving towards a MAT-led system by 2030 or whether that's still going to be a major priority. I think there is a sense in the sector that, that the schools bill did try to address something that at the moment we're kind of um, halfway across a bridge and the bottom half of the bridge is kind of falling away behind us, which is that we have a, a school system that's kind of two-tier. We have two, broadly, two different types of school, maintained schools and academies, completely different, funded differently, operate differently, yet exist in the same space. And I think there's a, there's a sense that we need to move to a singular system. 
at least among many commentators anyway. And the white paper was an attempt to do that. And yeah, because of the various different kind of U-turn after U-turn after U-turn that we've been kind of in a holding position since since the spring, it'd be interesting to see if, even if the bill goes, whether there's any of the kind of ambitions of the school's white paper, whether the government come out saying, yeah, we still want this. We still think uh, all schools should be maths, in maths by 2030, that, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's really, really interesting time. Mm. Um, I think, I think um, alongside kind of priorities, I guess a lot of schools will also be looking towards poss- what funding is going to look like, of course. Jeremy Hunt's set to make his autumn statement next month, and I'm sure lots in education are going to be waiting in kind of anxious anticipation, hoping there's some good news for schools there. How likely does that look? Yeah, that's. I mean, that is the the, the question really. And I think what's what's really striking is I've kind of talked slightly kind of nerdily or breathlessly about like the, the varying different takes on education policy. If you speak to any head teacher, the first thing they will say is, "Don't don't worry about any of that. Mm-hmm. We don't know how we're going to." balance the budget this year. We don't know how we're going to afford our pay ri- uh, the pay rises that the government are saying we need to give teachers. We don't know what we're going to do with energy bills beyond beyond the spring. There is, I think, I've, I've been covering education for longer than I care to remember. I don't think I've ever seen quite the sense of anger, worry, and concern among school leaders and the organizations that represent them about just how difficult it is to um, for schools to, to operate. So yeah, so the, the thing they care about, as you say, is is this funding and there's kind of two two bits to that really prior to um prior to the kind of economic turmoil of the past month everything i've just said now still stood schools arrived in september really concerned and really adamant that the government would need to find more money in order for them to be to, to be viable i think there's a lot of multi academy trusts saying that they're going to eat into reserves this year and that that will see them through this year but then what happens next year and for some smaller maps or maintained schools that that isn't um or single academy trust that's not necessarily an option available to them. And then those concerns have been exacerbated by the financial turmoil that we've seen, the chopping and changing of government, Jeremy Hunt coming in as chancellor, and now the expectation of a kind of a new wave of um, public spending cuts. I think what you can say is the sector has in the past done very well in making the case for school funding. I think it was largely understood to have been a factor in the 2017 general election uh, when the Conservatives lost their majority. Mm. Um, However, I guess the the difference this time is that they are competing among various crises for political attention. I think it was really striking during the political conference season that we that we've been through, um, which already feels like two political cycles <laughs> ago, because the Liz, it was Liz Truss's unveiling of a a policy platform that went, yeah. and then a prime minister that went. Uh, but nonetheless, education wasn't top of the pile on either side of the of the political divide, um, and so I think that the worry is that there's so much financial turmoil and so much financial pressure that school leaders almost shouting amongst the crowd about mm. how dire their situation is when you know there's businesses everywhere and households everywhere worrying about their bills too but nonetheless the, the, you know when you look at the language of school leaders this is unprecedented stuff uh, in terms of how worried they are um is it likely that they will escape cuts i think it it's quite possible that that there won't be cuts to core school budgets, because that's such a bad and damaging soundbite for the mm. government. Is it likely that they're going to get any more money? I would think it's almost impossible in the current political climate and given what they're saying. And if school cuts do come, if, 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 if the kind of um, education budget is cut by, by Jeremy Hunt in this November statement, I think you're then going to see a, a rapid escalation or deterioration, depending on how you like to look at it, between schools and government and their relationship. 
the background to this is we're already in a position where you've got um, pay rises that are more than schools were told to budget for, so therefore creating a big headache for school leaders, but less than the, the cost of inflation that we're all facing. So a real terms cut for people working in schools. Um, and I think rather than creating a tension, I think that's, I think from what we see and hear, there's kind of a, a, a across leaders and teachers and TAs, a sense, a uniform sense of being let down by government over over a period of time, over, over funding and pay. Yeah. So on the prospect of strike action, I think very likely, you might even say almost definitely for teachers and also possible for school leaders. Yeah, there's a lot of dis- discontent. I mean, rightly so. But is there is there also a sense? I mean, I talked earlier. I kind of I kind of called it a relay race. I mean, are we at the finish line of that? Is it is it hard to tell? Is there going to be some stability now? And then we have a picture to build That's from a, here. That is a great question. Like, is, you know, in a month's time, are we going to be saying we're onto the step? <laughs> um, I I think that it's it seems to me more likely for for two reasons. One, if you look at the top of politics. I don't think the Conservative Party could implode again and get rid of another leader without going to a general election. I mean, I know there's no constitutional reason for them to have to do that, but I would think that the kind of the internal confidence of the party would wouldn't be able to sustain a, another leadership change. So that being the case, and if nothing changes to force a general election in in the medium term, then I think the appointment of Nick Gibbon, Robert Halfen particularly, gives you two ministers with a long and proven track record of caring about schools, you know, irrespective of what you think about their politics or, or, or things that you agree or disagree with, with. You know, they're not people who've, who've come to this sort of as an appointment that they're pleased to get on their kind of ministerial journey or, you know, their first chance to be, be at this level. These are two people coming into a policy area that they've got a long knowledge of and commitment on various different causes. So, for Nick Gibb, obviously he's passionate about standards and about the way an academic education is delivered for all. And Robert, Robert Halfen has been a passionate proponent for curriculum reform, for the promotion of skills. He's been really, really strong on the need for improvements for children and young people with SEND. And he was really outspoken on, on against lockdowns, if you like, and their, their impact on, on pupils. Now, as I say, I'm not advocating anything either of them has said, but I do think that you do get the sense that they, they are people who will want to make an impact in the jobs that they have because they already have a clear and defined understanding of what they think is wrong and what they think needs to change, what they think matters. So, yeah, I, I do think there's every chance that we now have a, an established ministerial team. And please don't play this quote back in a month's time <laughs> if, um, if I'm wrong. Yeah, hopefully, I suppose uh, we won't be writing another article on a new education minister or a new education team anytime soon, I guess. Well, I, 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 was, I was off for a couple of days this week and it's half term, so I had childcare and I almost just clicked on it. I was like, oh, we have a new government this week and a new education secretary. <laughs> it d- doesn't seem, when, when Gavin Williamson went, I remember thinking, gosh, this is a, this is a big moment, new mm. education secretary. What does this mean for policy? But for the last, yeah, what we're we saying, four or five months, it hasn't felt like that. It's felt like the reshuffles are almost a um, a symptom of the chaos rather than a change of political direction. This might be a bit different. This does feel like um, appointments with kind of a plan in mind, but, yeah. but we'll see. Yeah, it remains to be seen, but maybe we'll be over the next few months painting a better picture of what this means for education. John, it's a pleasure as always. Thanks for joining me again today. Thanks, Josh. 
Now to run through a whole reel of features stories this week, I'm joined once again by senior editor Dan Worth. Dan, welcome back. Hello there. So we've got we've got a lot of stories to cover this week. And you know, earlier you sent me a message, just a big list of stories. You didn't really want to drop any. Was it a busy week? It has been a very busy week. We had the political stuff, as, as you've, we've just heard, but just loads more of things going on. And it just seemed a shame to just only pick out one or two. I think we should look at a lot of things. So um, yeah, let's crack on. Yeah, yeah. So as you said, listeners will have heard. I was just catching up with uh, John Roberts about the new look slash not so new look DFE uh, ministerial appointments that they bring in some relevant experience and perhaps a set of ideas and values to the sector. So of course we've had a lot of speculation going on in the sector. I guess about what this could mean for policy. What are the experts saying, Dan? Yes, I spoke to a raft of different people. So David Carter, um, Laura McInerney, Sam Friedman. Uh, Jeff Barton at uh, uh, Askell, just to get their sense of all, what, what do we know about these people and what they might bring to education in terms of policy and direction. And there's lots of different things in the piece that I wrote, uh, which you can find on the website, you know, looking at the fact that, you know, Halfen's well known for having a big focus on vocational skills, and so is Gillian Keegan, whereas Nick Gibb is your more traditionalist. And so how will that all marry together? Where will they go with that? But of course, you know, they're going to have to also tackle the funding crisis facing schools. They're going to have to potentially reinvigorate the schools bill. So They've got forward-looking policies, great, but they might have to deal with some more pressing concerns too. So again, the piece really goes into that in more detail, pieces together a bit about what we know about them and their interests, their passions. Um, so yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that team develops. Yeah, definitely. And talking of the DfE, it seems they've also changed their targets for trainee maths teachers, but the numbers on that don't seem to quite add up. Yeah, that's right. This was a piece from Gronia this week, looking at, um, yeah, as you say, maths teacher recruitment numbers were reduced in the most recent ITT uh, round. And that was something that sort of caught Gronje's eye because she thought, well, that's strange because they hadn't hit their targets for the previous two years. So why would you suddenly drop it now, particularly when we know there's recruitment issues in maths as there is in other subjects? So she went off and had a look at this and tried to find some explanations for it. Um, DFE sort of line in it wasn't explicitly clear. Um, she then spoke to some frontline teachers about that. Yes, they're still struggling to recruit maths teachers. We looked at some school dash data which shows number of vacancies for math teachers, which we can see are still high, in fact, they're higher than they were last year. A couple of math leaders saying they still struggle sometimes to find math teachers. So it all points to a slightly strange situation where they've reduced the target for math teachers, but we know we still need many more math teachers and we haven't hit our targets before anyway. So quite why they've done this is not really 100% clear, but uh, Green does a very good job in the piece of really sort of breaking it all out, which I think really if you're in that kind of world if you want to know more about it definitely worth reading that piece with a, with a very cool headline why does the dfe think we need fewer maths teachers yeah i i thought i liked her last line in that particularly which was until the dfe shows us it's working out it's very hard to know what mark to give. yes yes there's a lot of maths puns in that piece yeah you're right yeah of course uh it's not just the conservatives that are making plans for education labor are too uh, there's a decent chance as we've heard there could be a labor government relatively soon if polls are anything to go by. So what ideas do they have for education? Yeah, they put out a skills report uh, this week, which is not their express policy of what they will bring in. It's more a sort of guide for the, it's sort of like an internal thing for the party to think about for their manifesto. And it was actually chaired by Lord Blunkett. Um, and the report has a lot in it. Uh, and as um, one of our contributors, Loic Menzies, who is the um, former CEO of the Centre for Education and Youth and a visiting fellow at Sheffield Institute of Education, He's written it's a very detailed, very insightful piece, pulling out all the different proposals they've put in there from early years, where they sort of touch on the need for, you know, do we need more staff in early years to have better 
provision for young people and to give parents a chance to go back to work. Seems like a good thing. They have some more things around curriculum and wanted to reinvigorate the curriculum, which are less popular, I think. There's a little bit more confusion over there about what they've put forward. Some of their models about assessment as well seem to be sort of like Loic's interpretation is not the most positive. Um, but then things like sabbaticals for teachers, if they've been there for a long time, five years, I think is the plan. That's sort of seen as, yeah, that, that could help, you know, because we need to make sure we have better retention. And if you know you're going to get a break, you know, I, I presume there'd be some sort of trigger where you'd have to come back to make sure you didn't, you could just do five years, get a sabbatical and then never come back. But, you know, mm. an interesting idea, certainly. And then at the end of, he talks about the apprenticeship and lifelong learning focus and sort of says that's a really sort of good element in a way because we do need to make sure that people realize they can go back and train and relearn and retrain and it's not just a one-shot system so again i've really that's a real sort of top level view of the piece really worth reading if you're interested in what labor's proposals are and and what they could mean and the, and the headline again the good the bad and the confusing because some bits don't really make sense but maybe they will be formed into more detailed policy in the future yeah i'm sure we'd be looking at, at both parties ideas going forward mm. Uh, moving on then, next up, we've got another article from Gronya, which is SATs, how to fix year six writing moderation. Why was it broken in the first place? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's, it's a very uh, detailed article, this. So again, I, I will try and do the best of my ability to really convey the, the key elements, but I highly recommend you read it if you're interested in primary assessment and primary schools and so forth. So Gronya's sort of piece is looking at um, the how we moderate year six writing and the fact that the, currently there are, you know, different gradations. There is working towards the expected standard, working at the expected standard or greater depth. And it's very much sort of, well, how do you judge an 11-year-old's writing against those three slightly nebulous terms? And she sort of picks up an example in the very first line, which is a teacher who shared an example with us where their, their pupil wrote, the devious spirit towered over the dead corpse, which Halloween around the corner, right? I mean, that's a, that's a great line, isn't it? If you wrote that, oh, it's a, it really conjures up a, a terrifying image. And yet this was considered to just be working at just the expected standard because dead corpse is, well, of course they're dead. They're a corpse, so you don't need it. Now, that is technically correct. And, and you know, but A, that's an 11-year-old child writing that. So let's, you know, we ought to be a bit harsh there. And all I almost would say, you know, dead corpse, it almost has a sort of, double kind of impact doesn't it you know that's that's a creative license you might say but really that's another matter but the point is it's like how though can it be fair to have that level of scrutiny on on that kind of thing which is open to interpretation and the piece then picks about picks up on the fact that many teachers do feel that the moderation at this age is too subject to the whims of the moderator it's not there's not enough consistency should we therefore change it should we bring a different model should we not moderate at all you know should we not be assessing at this age in that style at all Again, it's a very complex article. I'm not, I'm not doing the sort of depth of it justice here, the way I'm talking about it. But I think hopefully that intro line wants to make you want to go and read it. But I do think, you know, this issue of how we assess and look at young people, particularly the primary age phase, is something that's very emotive and all, but also very practical because it informs how we look at them going forward. And so Groen's piece does a great job of really like holding this to account and saying, are we doing this right? Do we need to think about it again? So definitely worth a read. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I took a brief look at that one. That's probably the one I was going to go back and have another look mm. at. There were some bits that stuck out there to me. Of course, it also seems that nearly every week on the podcast, especially in the news section, we're talking around funding issues for the sector. Of course, John was on earlier just saying just how dire the feeling is from school leaders when it comes to funding. And this week we had ASCAL chief Jeff Barton write for us on the issue too. What did he have to say? 
Yes, well, as you say, funding's everywhere at the moment. And Jeff's article written on the back of a, a news story about this dire funding situation really just laid bare the extent of the problem. Um, and the, the you know, schools looking at cutting staff, at reducing extracurricular activities, turning the heating off. Um, you know, and these are these are not like abstract things, right? These are really real. These are gonna happen, they're happening in schools. And, you know, unless budgets are boosted by the government, which, you know, it's a very sort of glib thing, isn't it? People say that all the time, oh, we need more money. But really, we know, you know, they've just been given unfunded pay rises. Staff deserve pay rises, yes. But if you can't fund them, then it's going to have an impact on school outcomes, on school funding in other areas. You can't just live through massive inflation and expect you not to have an impact on your budgets. And if they're already stretched, it doesn't matter whether you have raised them to, a, you know, very, fairly recently, they're already out of date. And so... There's a real concern here, which Jeff's piece sort of really outlines, is that this is very real, very pressing. And again, to go back to that DFE ministerial team that just come in, it's something they're going to have to deal with. Or if they ignore, I think you're going to see the, the public writ large realising what's happening. Mm. There is a question to ask. Uh, we were talking there about teacher pay, whether more money for teacher pay is actually going to be enough to help fix issues that we have with recruitment and retention. I mean, of course, we all know that saying money doesn't buy happiness. Mm. I'm not so sure how much I personally believe <laughs> that. But uh, Director General of the IB, Oli Pekka Heinonen, says there are other ways to, dra to uh, help drastically overworked teachers, right? Yes, this was a great piece. Um, again, really pleased to have the Director General of the International Baccalaureate writing for us and his article. And you know, he was the former education minister of Finland. And Finland is often regarded as one of these sort of, you know, top tier educational um, countries. And, and, you know, the data sort of shows why. And he sort of makes the point that whenever he meets teachers and he asks them, why do you, why are you a teacher? They never say money. They always talk about having a job with purpose and the chance to sort of develop their own way of teaching with, with mixed with a sort of professional, you know, very professional grounding, you know, teacher, teachers in Finland are really highly regarded because of the depth of their training. And he sort of makes the point that, you know, you can just keep throwing money at people. Okay. But it's not really an answer, is it? As you alluded to, it doesn't, it does buy a certain form of misery, maybe. But if the workload is too high, if you have no chance for professional development, you don't feel you're growing as a person, it's not going to make you stick around. It doesn't matter. You know, you're not going to just keep on doing it year after year. And if you are and your morale's at rock bottom, as he says, are you even therefore going to be a good teacher? You know, so his argument very much is we need to think about how we address the, the workload um, issue, which is something that's been talked about a lot. And it sort of bubbles up and then disappears again. I think pre-pandemic, there was a lot of talk about it and there was a sense in the sector that Finally, workload is being addressed. Then the pandemic happened. Everyone's workload went through the roof and it hasn't really come back down to the kind of levels they were trying to get it back down to. So again, he, I think it's really interesting that he as someone in, in the international sector, um, in a different kind of phase and style of curriculum and so forth, but it's clearly seeing this too, is aware of it, is willing to talk about it on the, in the public domain. It just shows that we need to have a big, a bit of a reset maybe between funding, between pay, between workload to get it right. Mm. Because, you know, again, the maths teacher story, these all, these all link, don't they? We saw recruitment, retention, these things are all really big and, and complex problems and we need a sort of one, you know, a workable solution that, that covers all of it. Yeah, talking about workload and that issue again coming to the, the forefront, um, the last story on our list is about why well-being inspections are stressing out private schools. Mm. So this is an article, uh, an, an anonymous article by a, a private school head teacher who was talking about the fact that the independent, um, sorry, the yeah, the independent schools inspector is introducing a new framework for its inspections, which is going to have well-being at the heart of it. This was something they announced earlier in the year. They've been consulting on, 
Um, and it's a bit of a, as this person says, it's set hairs running when they put this forward because it's very different to Ofsted. And well-being, again, it's a slightly nebulous concept, isn't it? Like we all know sort of fundamentally the way what well-being is and isn't. But if you actually have to write it down in a way that you could then critique a school on how they're doing against well-being, well, one person's interpretation would probably be different to another. And then if complaints are within this, are going to be used as part of a sort of scoring system or an inspection system. Well, how many complaints is too many? What, what type of complaint? What if the complaints are come from a child or they come from a parent? You know, what's the sort of rationale behind this? And this person talks about how at a recent conference where these people were in a room, so the, the inspector and the head teachers, there was a lot of, you know, ten, tension, it sounds like, and a lot of questions being asked and answers that weren't necessarily, you know, uh, covering people's concerns. So again, it just shows, doesn't it, all these sectors are all got their own sort of issues going on and, and there's a lot of sort of movement and change happening and maybe some of it will be for the better. But in this instance, it's clear that the heads at this conference were all kind of on the same page as asking the inspectorate, we don't really get this and we're not convinced this is the best way to go about this, but it seems it's going to happen. So those tensions are only going to carry on. So yeah, another very interesting article. Again, anonymous, but no less punchy. Um, definitely worth checking out if you're in that sector or, or interested in that. Yeah, a lot of uh, food for thought there on our whistle-stop tour yes. through the uh, the features this week. All of those stories, as always, available on our website, tes.com forward slash magazine. Please do make sure to go and check those out if anything there at all interests you. Dan, thank you, as always, for joining me again this week. No problem. <laughs>